Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, and yes, this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them, digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries, decarbonisation to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states 2045, and ongoing disruptions which come in many shapes, uh, not only pandemics but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistic interruptions and challenges, global inflation and oh, so many more. Each fortnight I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain, I chat with fascinating and interesting people and we try to have some fun along the way. Today, I want to delve into the issue that's important across the whole of end-to-end supply chains, and that's cross-cultural communication. The topic comes from feedback from you, the listeners, so I'm pleased to talk about it today. You know, we operate businesses and supply chains on an island at the bottom of the South Pacific, which obviously means at some stage we are going to have to do business with people in and from another country and in and from other cultures. And, you know, it's easy to make mistakes and cause problems for ourselves and our businesses from accidental poor messaging or cultural faux pas or by not understanding that the world sees itself differently and operates differently from the way we do and it has different assumptions. We've heard examples of cross-cultural successes and failures in recent episodes with Melissa Anderson and Adam Blake and Ennis Willocks and others. And from my own personal experience, I know it's easy to get it wrong, but it's also possible to get it right at least most of the time. A while ago, I re- replied to a request from someone who I was doing business with in, um, in Eastern Europe, and they asked me if they could delay delivering what I was asking until Monday. They, they, they were due on Friday. They said, can, you, can I give it to you on, on Monday? I just want a bit more time to work on it. And I replied by email, sure, no worries. I got a flood of concerned emails almost instantly when she was wondering why I'd had any worries at all, she said, we've been doing business for a long time, James. Why do you have worries? I didn't know you had worries. <laughs> you should have told me you had worries before, etc., etc." And when I explained that no worries was just an Australian idiom, she was most unimpressed, I can tell you. And likewise, I recently spoke to an American student who uh, lives in the same block of units that I do, or is living here. Uh, and I said, winter's coming. Well, she's got to put a jumper on. They seriously asked me, if a jumper had something to do with kangaroos. <laughs> now, I know they're just words and colloquialism, sure, but there are also examples of how communication go wrong by very simple things. It's easy to stumble just by not understanding or by not knowing or by being aware. But it's more than that. When I was at uni and learning about this stuff, we heard many stories of when Americans were Americans back in the 60s and 70s were flying into Japan, had one meeting with a senior Japanese business leader, and they were leaving, flying back to America, thinking that when the Japanese had said yes, they said yes to that deal. In actual fact, the Japanese were just saying, yes, we will consider it. A classic case of cross-cultural misunderstanding. So what are we talking about? Well, the basic definition of cross-cultural communication is how people from different cultural backgrounds communicate in similar or different ways from themselves and how they endeavour to communicate across cultures. It's an interesting question, isn't it? So it all sounds a bit complicated, I think we should ask a senior business manager for her first-hand experience and insights from years in the global trade arena 
to help us learn and understand. So my guest today is Louise McGraw, a long-time world traveler, a multiculturalist, a specialist in global trade systems, and an experienced coordinator and facilitator of multiple overseas trade missions with Australian businesses. She's the head of industry development policy for the Australian Industry Group. She's a damn fine human being, and I'm really pleased to have on the program. So hello, Louise. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. You've been travelling and dealing with the world for decades, well, maybe one decade, I don't know, don't want to age you. Have you got a favourite story of miscommunication in cross-cultural settings? Well, I think there's lots. I mean, as you say, Australian idioms really do catch us up. Um, there's a very famous one when Bob Hawke was in China and um, speaking with his counterpart and said, you know, stop playing funny buggers with me or I'm not here to play funny buggers, which is a very famous, um, you know, Australian term, though I don't think my daughter, my 17-year-old daughter would understand it these days. It's not perhaps as current as it could be. And the translator very dutifully translated it as, I'm not here to play homosexual games. <laughs> and I guess I think that's, that's literal, yeah. <laughs> it is literal, and I think that's one of the challenges. You know, if you think of a dog, you know, the literal translation of a dog is a, a canine quadruped. Mm. But if you but you could also say man's best friend. Yes. Oh yes, yes. And, yes, and yes. if you're in a Western context, you'd think, oh yeah, that's a dog. Yes. So I think it's it's the inference that we put on words and how we use them, um, you know, that that sort of trips us up. Um, I think we had one client, their brand, their trademark was um, toys for kids with the number, the numeral four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then when they went to Asia, four sounds like death. Like if you translate the number four, it sounds like death. And so it's an unlucky number. You don't really use it. But, it, of course, linking death with children is not necessarily a great marketing tool either. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's it. So it's it's often you don't know until you become global and you start translating your logo or your name that you can get into trouble. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, uh, insurance company AXA, A-X-A, did a worldwide search to find a word that was acceptable in every language uh, and AXA mm. was what they came up with. Um, and, it, of course, it doesn't mean anything in any language because it was... no. Yeah. And and I think some of these tech companies, you know, at startup stage when they have huge, you know, big global aspirations, they work with, with, um, you know, these now consulting firms to work out what what should we call this, what what great name could we call this company that works in every setting mm, like mm. Uber. And of course, often businesses just start, and then they start exporting, and then they become global, and then you've got to try yeah. and figure out what to do with the, uh, with the brand, which sounds really good in one language, but not necessarily in another language. It's not an interesting issue. Uh, let's, let's go back to the start. You're the head of industry development and policy at the Australian Industry Group. Um, and, you know, you've sort of been involved in international trade for, for a long time. So I wanted to ask you uh, about the US Inflation Reduction Act before we get over to cross-cultural. Let's talk about international trade. Mm. Our CEO, uh, the CEO of Australian Industry Group, Ines Phillips, when he was on this podcast recently, he said he thought Australia was still coming to understand the full impact on Australia of the US Inflation Reduction Act, which is known as ZIRA. Um, to remind the listeners, ZIRA is a $520 billion, 10-year Congress-approved economic plan uh, created and implemented by President Biden. It's designed to use the transition to net zero as a way to re-industrialise the US, to quote President Biden. 
Uh, and there's two key points to it. One is that they can't do it all on their own, so they're going to include uh, their friends, their, uh, the people which have free trade agreements with them, and that includes Canada and Australia. There's lots of opportunity for Australia for manufacturers, professional services, and whatever. But IRA is also heavily based around subsidies. It encourages American businesses and consumers to buy US-made clean products, and if you buy those products, we'll give you a subsidy and deduction if you don't get charged full full weight. And this Buy American has seen is seen as protectionist by parts of the EU. Uh, so in a suggestion there might be a, blow, a blowback uh, from the EU onto America. So with that context in mind, and picking up Innes' point, Louis, what's the state of play for Australia? Are we going to struggle with coming to terms with the enormity of this or uh, what should we do? So I think when the IRA was first announced, you know, we were, I was approached by DFAT and others to say, look, here's a great opportunity for Australia because, you know, for that EV or the electric vehicle to attract a subsidy, the critical minerals in the battery had to come from an FTA partner like Australia or Canada. And so, you know, what great, you know, this is going to increase demand or increase demand for our minerals. And the problem is, though, processing critical minerals is dirty work. Um, you know, Linus, an Australian firm, is having a lot of trouble in Malaysia in processing um, lithium. It's it's not, you know, it has problems with local community support and environmental regulations. So a lot of critical minerals are actually processed in China. Now, this is a strategic um, play as much as it is an environmental play that the, the US is hoping that by investing so much and moving the dial that it will actually shift some of this production from China. Whether or not it comes to Australia or not is a whole other thing. I mean, we're not we're not mm. known for processing yeah. our minerals, but we generally dig and, and send it out. And also we have very different regulatory framework than China. Um, we're not a centrally controlled economy, so we, the government can't say well, we need to process them here, you know, come what may. The other thing is that we that that sort of hit that secret advantage we thought we had along with with Canada has actually been diminished because the US has been gifting this around the region. So they've said to Indonesia, oh well, fine, we'll, we'll recognise your critical minerals now as well. <laughs> okay, well you're and, into you're, you can play, you that's can play, right. Yeah. Yes, that's it. So they're using it. I mean it's 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 Getting a lot of attention as an environmental play, but as I said, it's it's more of a strategic play, and it's how they use their economic might in the region and and to pull pull um, countries into the, the their circle. And there is emerging when you talk to anyone in the critical minerals industry, there is emerging a sort of a Western critical minerals market, and then the rest of the world. Well, and okay. there will be a price premium. I think mm-hmm. that you know, but. Key to that price premium will be traceability because if you're buying your EV, whether in Europe or the US, how do you know that it's not being fueled by critical minerals that have used slave labour or, you know, destroyed the environment and all sorts of other things? How do you know that it's you know, in being processed in, in Australia with proper worker protections, proper environmental protections? Um, if you're being forced to pay that premium, you want confidence. So digital supply chains, I think, will really play into this. Well, I was going to ask you about digital supply chain. I mean, it reminds me of uh, of blood diamonds, you know, and you know, mm. being made, being being stolen basically, and then sold on the market, and they're, they're created by the blood of people in Africa. 
and uh, an Australian company came up with a blockchain that made it possible to uh, to recognise where the where the diamonds came from. And the question is, blockchain's been around for a long time, so why isn't we don't have fully digitalised trade docs? There's an easy question for you, Louise. Yeah, this is the challenge. I mean, I think perhaps because trade documents, you know, are, are hundreds of if not thousands of years old because the old days when merchant ships and things, everyone wanted a piece of paper. We haven't evolved that much. COVID helped. But well, I found weird. out, by the way, I found out that a passport was exactly that. It was a pass to go into a port. It was mm. actually a, a bit of paper that said, you may now pass into our port. Mm. I didn't know that. But yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so well, I think COVID's helped a lot, but, um, you know, we like, we like to have a piece of paper, but th- that chain of custody will become really important, I think, on these critical minerals, especially those sorts of fungible products. I mean, I, you know, there's critical minerals in my phone. I don't know where they've come from. I don't want to think about it, frankly. So are we going to see digital trade docs in the future? I think so. This is driving it. I mean, one of the challenges, though, at the moment, there's no um, customs duties on the movement of data across the world. You know, you move goods around and there's duties. Mm-hmm. Just, pick, you know, now data, why not? Like some people are asking, why isn't there duty on, on data? Because, you know, that people profiting from it. Canada, oh, sorry, not Canada, India, South Africa and Indonesia in particular are really strong on this. They're saying we're leaving millions of dollars at the door. We need to be, you know, people profiting off our natural resources, which is the, the our large populations and the, and the data they produce. Someone needs to be paying for it. And at the moment, the moratorium on these data um, tariffs is under the WTO, but it's not permanent. So it gets extended every year. We need consensus. And every year, India in particular and South Africa hold us all to ransom while we try to to navigate this. So there is a risk, frankly, that if data is applied to digital transactions, then we also have completely digitalized supply chains that will be paying twice. They'll be paying twice, yeah. Now, you can speak on this because you're involved in a number of international committees and organisations, aren't you? Do you want to just talk about that for a while? Because that's a great way to set up cross-cultural communication. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very fortunate. um, Within AR Group, I've been in AR Group for 23 years and I started off on the trade desk and involved into doing trade missions. My first trade mission was to Vietnam in 2022. No, sorry, 2002. and I've been very fortunate to take all sorts of trade missions of all sorts of industries to China, to India, most of Asia, South America, um, you know, right across health, mining, environmental products, construction, auto, printing. Anyway, so I was very lucky to do that. And, but one of the things with taking so many companies into these markets is you identify what are the barriers and what are the limitations. And that then um, helped me to have to move into trade policy. So I've been doing trade policy work at AI Group maybe for 10 years, seven to 10 years, and then now into this role. So AI Group as a national um, peak body gets to be invited to a range of other other meetings, of bilateral meetings. So for instance, we're very involved in the B20, which feeds directly into the G20. 
So yeah, that's I've business twenty. That's the business twenty meeting yes. before the G twenty. In a certain he was the president of the Global Trade Council or something. And I said, "That's a very yeah, good Global title. Business Coalition." Yeah, that's, that's a really right. good title. That's a very cool title. Yeah. Well, my title's even better. So he's the principal and and president. I'm the lead sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume that's a good description of what you have to do. It, it, to... I think it is probably the better description. Yes. Hmm. Sorry, uh, and so the Global Business Coalition is around 16 um, national industry associations. It's top 20 countries, um, all sort of industrial associations such as ourselves, and we come together and, and compare notes and, and, and joint um, statements on things like digital trade, um, the, the health of the, the World Trade Organisation, the role of environmental um considerations in, in trade policy and we also then um, are usually a key partner in the B20 host so this year it's India is hosting G20 B20 and um, so Innes is on their um, lead advocacy council and I'm, I'm on the task force for um, ESG supply chains. Oh wow That'd and be fun. you know yeah it is interesting. One thing, though, with the free trade agreement work, though, is much more detailed. And so I've been very fortunate that I've represented our group on a number of task forces for our different free trade agreements. So we had one for Indonesia, for ISEPA, and so there was ourselves, Aki, and, and the bilateral chamber, and in Indonesia, Apindo, and Kardin, and their bilateral. And that was really useful because it meant that, we, you know, the negotiators were putting forward an argument and we could reassure the business community of things that we really wanted the negotiators put forward, such as good digital trade policies. And I think, you know, ISEPA probably, probably took Indonesia further than they were necessarily comfortable with in digital trade policy. Mm. I think it's really quite good. RCEP... Um, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a free trade agreement for with all of ASEAN and their FTA partners. So it, that includes Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan, China and India. So it's around um, half the world's population, about 6% of global GDP. And the East Asia Business Council, which feeds into the East Asia Summit, created a working group on ASEP and invited myself to represent Australia. So I've been working with that group for a number of years and now we're in the implementation stage and that was really insightful in, in understanding how all these countries work together and or not because, you know, RCEP as a free trade agreement, I mean, the EU is 26 countries but they're not that dissimilar. The, the differences between RCEP are stark. It's got every religion, you know, there's... There's Christian countries, Muslim countries, Buddhist countries, no religion countries. Um, there's every form of government. There's constitutional mm -hmm. monarchies. You know, mm -hmm. there's centrally controlled. There's every form of economic platform. Like there's communist countries, yep. um, free market economies. Just everything. You can't. You can't. You couldn't get a more diverse group. And so the fact that they managed to work together to get a free trade agreement together was extraordinary. Actually, here's another fun example. Of but isn't it, it is an indication of how cross-cultural communication can work? Can work if you well, it can. But I'll give you a fun example of, of not a mistake, but it, it. I think it's good for Australians to remember. Like we call we say Asia, and you know that diversity. We forget about that diversity. But this one really. But I think we also forget that 
we have the advantage of seeing everyone differently. There was a session. So what we used to do is when there were for, when there were negotiation rounds, we would organise a, a business workshop in the margins of the, the negotiation, so that we'd get businesses talking about their issues and and the negotiators were in the room would time it carefully. So we had there was a session in Hyderabad, and I worked with the Confederation of Indian Industries to hold a session, and. So that the, our local host, CII, which is CII is really the preeminent association in India, they're fantastic, and they are the ones managing the B20 process this year. So our host stood up and said, oh, I'm so glad you're all here. I really love, um, love working with Asia. I used to live in Asia. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, I consider myself living in Asia. It's interesting you don't. Anyway, so then we had... Um, and, you know, there were delegates there from Thailand, from Japan, from everywhere. And they all just nodded, you know, of course, yes, you're not in Asia. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole series of rent seekers saying our, our industry is special and needs to be protected because. Mm-hmm. So when the 12th speaker got up, he said, oh, I'm the 12th man. I should be serving afternoon tea. Okay. Or the, th- or the 13th man. Anyway. The 12th man. 12th man. Yeah. And I could see the confused look on, on my Japanese colleagues and I so, leaned over like and I said, <laughs> I said, I think this is a cricket joke. And he went, oh. Inside for Louise, you've got it right. You've got it in one. <laughs> so I just thought, you know, as we think sometimes, and, and there's a lot more that Australian business community could do to improve our, our cross-cultural skills on working with Asia, but, you know, everyone can. Everyone can do more even those who are perhaps geographically closer. It's interesting what uh, what you say because years ago um, I was involved in uh, a possible predecessor to ASEP, which was the badly named Bimpiaga, Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, East Asian Growth Area. Um, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to get – you sort of need to look at the map, but there's a sort of circle amongst a whole bunch of cities, a bunch of countries there that – should deal with each other because they're close by. Uh, I was in the Northern Territory at the time and we were trying to sort of get sort of membership or get our voice in and they're saying, we can't because you're not part of that growth area nor are you in Asia. Uh, but the way that you explained it before, where you can have their, their MOUs and their partnerships mm. involved, that's much better. But what did what, what did come, jump out at me when, um, when you said that is that at the time, you know, you know there was uh, – uh, Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines. Well, there was, there was parts of Indonesia that was fighting with the Philippines, you know, like parts. Mm. Like Mindanao was fighting with West Timor, I think, like physically fighting, uh, and we're trying to do a trade deal. Uh, it's interesting. When you say Asia, even Southeast Asia, there's nothing homogenous about it at all. And oh, there no. was Muslim versus Christian as being another fundamental issue. Well, just think, I mean, just think how are these countries coming to the table and negotiating as equals? You've got Myanmar which is still one of the poorest countries I've ever been to. I mean, I just think every broken old mobile phone is there for sale. Like It's just just Mm. the end of Mm. the line. Standing there in their own right next to Japan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's that's the extraordinary thing. I mean, I think that's the thing with trade is that countries get to, they've all got a vote. They've all got a shared vote or an equal vote rather. The other thing we don't always recognise is I was was in... um, I was in Thailand, uh, yeah, Thailand, and we went to a, 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 some ruins, uh, and the ruins were caused by uh, a battle they had with the Burmese, like 
5,000 years ago, long time, a long, long time ago. And you say, oh, this guy's been fighting for much longer than what the Western history is that we've been talking about. There's, there's deep stories here. Yeah. Mm. And, and that must happen all around the world. I mean, that's part of Of course. That yeah. must be part of the mm. European, you know, apparently if you say the the, the French, we won the last, we won the war. They said, that's just the last war. We won the, yeah. the 400 beforehand. <laughs> How did, uh, oh, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the free trade agreements. Um, you said you're on the free trade agreement task force. Are free trade agreements still a thing? Or are we just throwing all that sort of rules-based order out the window and we, there's a free-for-all now between the US and Russia and everybody else? Um, no, China. no, they're very much a thing. But the problem is that the WTO isn't as strong as it should be. And I think that's because people have different views. Like what is the purpose of the the WTO. I think a lot of people, when the, when China joined, they just thought, great, China's now going to become a democracy, as if the WTO is just sort of some homogenous washing machine where mm, mm. everyone goes in this different and comes out the same. Whereas I've always seen the WTO as, as the way for differences, you know, for people with differences to work together and to talk together and to, to find solutions. That well, the concept of the WTA was that you don't fight if you're trading. That, that was mm. like, and, and taking away might from right. Uh, so yeah. there's a right way of doing it, and not just the big guys are going to win. That was the idea yeah. of the WTA. That is, but but the challenge is it does have a consensus model. So, you, you know, as I mentioned with the digital trade rules, India can be a holdout. And until they sign on, you don't have a consensus. We're all held hostage. Yeah, yeah, right. So there is a big trend, um, which you, I don't know if you send links, but we do have a Jeff and I wrote a nice report on the big five trends of trade. Jeff being Jeff being Dr. Jeff Wilson, the chief economist of um, AI Group. That's right. Um, one of the the sort of big five trends is this plurilateral trade club. So CPTPP, which was the old TPP. Um, countries are lining up to join. UK has just joined. Um, hopefully South Korea does. Yeah, UK joining is a different story, isn't it? It just changes things altogether. That's right. So it stops being a Pacific. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm not sure it makes sense to join. But anyway, once more countries. So this is the thing that, you know, as WTO becomes disempowered, people have always, you know, you want rules. No matter who you are, you need rules to play by, even if you know what rules, which ones you can break. You, you need yeah, yeah, some yeah. consistency and some confidence. And so they're just signing up to find their own rules. And CPTPP mm. is probably the most advanced in terms of having good rules on digital trade, on services, on state-owned enterprises okay. and, and the like. It's a pity the US can't join and won't join, but um, the rest of the world is lining up. Again, it does change the fact that the US decided not to go ahead, which is a, mm. to change everything altogether. But I think what's really interesting, when the US left, everyone thought, well, that's it, it's finished. Yeah, I did. But what's really interesting to me is the way Japan stood up and got it through and used their regional power because mm. they don't do it often. So after World War II, you know, Japan, Germany and Japan took very different approaches so Japan was sort of, this never happened, let's never talk about it again, let's just move on, which, you know, truth and reconciliation doesn't always, that's probably not really aligned. Whereas Germany was like, you know, we did this, we acknowledge it, you know, pay for our on. sins forever. Yep. So honestly, the, the region has sort of used that against Japan. I've been in many conversations 
um, on East Asia that where, you know, the, the Chinese delegates said, oh, well, there you go, there's Imperialist Japan acting like that again. <laughs> oh, you know, goodness. Never, never forgiven. So they're very sensitive to standing up and taking a leadership role. And I think it's really, really exciting that that's, you know, Abe did a fantastic job in getting that over the line. Hmm, hmm. I, this is setting up perfectly because you've sat in these meetings where people from totally different cultures are trying to find a way to communicate. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I, what, I think it's worth talking about the fact, how did a, a, a young girl from country Victoria end up in walking the world stage in trading <laughs> meetings? Well, I um, I studied Arabic at university at Deakin, and as you, I, well, as I you do, saying, as everyone does, Arabic. Yeah. <laughs> I did Indonesian. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, Arabic's different from the Arab language today. I assume it's, it's like Greek, uh, like like Rome versus Italian. Oh no, it it's no, no. I didn't really learn. It's not as, as if I learnt Latin, but um, Arabic, the, the what's called Fusa, that this formal standard Arabic that's written down is sort of what newsreaders use official documents use uh-huh. what everyone speaks in their own country their own dialect is not written down oh okay so that's so, how that and you studied both of those i guess well at university you really only study the the formal the formal right. arabic mm-hmm. but i um so nine so I've, well i'll just age myself anyway so 91 was my first year 92 the summer of 92, I went to Jordan for six weeks to study in Arabic University. Clearly so a I child learned... prodigy, clearly a child prodigy. <laughs> so I learned a bit of the local um, dialect and then um, a few years after that, I spent as a private student to Alexandria University in Egypt. And I oh, wow. Were you then a European then or was there other, other people there? No, so this is a special language school in Europe. They have, um, it's mandated that if you're studying a language, you... Um, spend a year in the country and so uh-huh. they created Oxford so there's British universities Oxford someone in a couple of others um, Exeter and someone else they'd set, start, created this language school in okay. Alexandria yeah, but I also it. did um, I also did Indonesian in year 12 which is mm-hmm. the peak those 80s is when mm-hmm. a lot of as a lot of Australian students did Indonesian unfortunately yeah, 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 those numbers yeah. have really slashed which is unfortunate Hmm. Anyway, so I studied Arabic and, you know, spent some time and then I, um, and the, the course was Arabic language and culture. So, you know, the history of the Middle East, etc., which is a cradle of civilization. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, Western civilization anyway. Um, and I joined, I did all sorts of things, you know, I was in the UK, worked in, and then came home, worked in foreign exchange, insurance, etc., and then joined AI Group on the trade desk. It's very junior doing certificates of origin. And certificates of origin, well, in those days particularly, was the best place to learn about trade because, you know, members never call with good news. But on the certificate of origin desk, even less so. It's, there's problems, problems after problems, which is how you learn. One of the interesting things about cross-cultural communication is that if you're, if both sides, like any communication, both sides are really intent on, on understanding each other's it's possible. It's the art of the possible. It's when people are trying not to understand each other that happens. Um, mm. When you were a, 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 a youngish woman in, in um, Alexandria or somewhere, you must have been able to. It would be right to say that you'd be able you'd be able to get yourself understood quite easily because people would 
look favorably to you trying to try speak the language? What was your experience? Oh, yes. I guess what's your experience? Yeah. Well, it's a bit of novelty, of course. I mean, I remember once in in Jordan, like just to illustrate, like being in Irabid was a bit like being in Daniloquin or Dubbo or, you know, any other towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out, out, out in the town. sticks to use an Australian yeah. colloquialism, yes. Yeah, that's it. And I remember once in Amman I was, you know, and so for six weeks I only saw people who looked like Jordanians because that's all I was surrounded by. Yeah, yeah. I mean, other than the fellow students I had. And I remember once being in a in an ice cream shop and I could, you know, there was a mirror at the back and I saw, and I thought, goodness, who's that strange looking creature? And it was me. Like I just had almost <laughs> forgotten what I looked like. So <laughs> it made me really understand why representation matters and, and what ha- what it must be like for people who only see white faces everywhere mm. in leadership. You know, mm. it's really informed. I just think living overseas really just informs a whole lot of things across your life. But, yes, I was a novelty. So little kids would stare at me in the street because... Yeah. Yeah. There's not many Westerners between the two Gulf Wars in Jordan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and being the novelty means that people were willing to, to sort of engage with you and try and. Understand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I could get away with anything. I have a funny story. I was in a, a small Roman town in northern Spain. I'd been cycling, and I ended up in this town overnight. And the lady that was supposed to be there to, to meet me, had gone to a concert, and her father was there. So there was just this sort of, you know, sixty-year-old man there uh, looking after a, a, a hotel. And uh, he tried to speak Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish. I tried to speak English. He didn't speak English. We got nowhere. <laughs> and then he finally looked at me and said, beer? And I said, yeah, yeah. I get <laughs> and I thought, oh, there's the international language right there. Yeah. Well, I did a lot of sign language because when I was living in Egypt, you know, I was student, you know, it was an apartment and, I, you know, to buy a hose to connect the dishwasher, I mean, the washing machine, like I'm trying to do, like how do you, I think it's those things. Like trying to communicate broadly is, is a bit easier, but when yeah. you get to details. Like I remember once I had a trade show in Japan and there was a little bit of assembly required. I thought, how can I ask if they have a Phillips head screwdriver? So I had, because I couldn't travel. So I just did a, do you have a screwdriver with this on the tip and just did a cross? And they went, yes. Because <laughs> I, I was pretty sure in Japan they wouldn't have called it. A Phillips head screwdriver. No, I don't know why we call it a Phillips head screwdriver. I'm, someone will probably write it and tell me why, but I've got no idea. Uh, let's take a break and come back and talk about uh, cross-cultural communication. Before we do, uh, you, I, I must acknowledge that you are actually the project champion of this podcast. You're the one that pays my bills, so thanks very much. Um, do you listen to any podcasts? What do you sort of what what podcast do you enjoy? Oh, separate, separate to this one, of course. Um, well, sure. well, now that I don't, <laughs> I, I'm since COVID, I don't listen to as many podcasts because I used to walk to work, and now should point out um, that you live in Melbourne, so COVID is is a big deal for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I don't walk as much because I ride my bike anyway. So convoluted. There's a real. I mean, I like the the trade guys. I like trade underscore whatever it's called. Trade talks. Um, I like chats. Oh, I listen to trade talks. Trade talks is really good. If you don't know mm. about the, the free trade, uh, the um, uh, IRA, the in, yeah. Inflation Reduction Act, they, they, they're all over it. It's good. Yeah. Um, there's a, a really there's a new one that I'm really enjoying um, called Empire, which is by um, William. 
William Dalrymple, who wrote, you know, the history of East India Company in India and that sort of stuff, started off with the East India Company and now is broadly on empires and around the world, slave trade and something, but that's always very interesting. Fun one, though, I really like is um, Normal Gossip. Oh, Normal Gossip. That sounds good. That's it's a lot of fun. Um, we listen to it as a family. We have to drive somewhere because we find driving safaric. So it's it's just people write in, you know, crazy stories of the time they ended up going to a concert with two people, you know, two people they didn't really know, and all the problems with the motel charges and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, just they're, ran, they're you just know, just sort stories. of yeah. random stories that everyone has experienced and. Um, yeah. It's humanity though, isn't it? It's just, you know, you're, t- you're touching humanity. It's a common experience. And so we're yelling, don't, don't, don't go. Anyway, so, <laughs> and also the other one, sort of prosaic one is everything is alive. I like that one too. Everything's alive. So interviewing playing cards, interviewing a, an aluminium can who hopes to grow up to be in a, in a, um, an aerospace <laughs> wing. <laughs> I have to grow up to be a satellite, yeah. That, that, uh, that's it. Uh, well, look, we've gone off track again. Let's take a short break, come back and talk about cross-cultural right. communication. Okay. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, Contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Louise, before the break, you mentioned East Indian Trading Company. And and I was thinking about this in preparation for this uh, conversation because uh, business people have always sort of talked cross-culturally, haven't they? I mean, East India was set up to trade. Then the sort of diplomats and the the empire builders came in and changed the, the language completely and made it much more, you know, patriarchal and controlling. But business has this this approach of of cross cultural uh, equanimity. Would that be fair? Mm. Well, I just think for a lot of our so we, we've talked a lot about exporters, but for many of our members, you know, once the manufacturing set, sector was sort of diminished in Australia, sort of that the low-tech, low-skilled manufacturing moved offshore and we deregulated, all our companies who are in that high-tech, high-skilled manufacturers who have exports have doubled over the last 20 years, they have relied significantly on imports. So a lot of our members, their first foray overseas is not as a, as a seller but as a customer, which immediately changed the power differential. Hmm. Go and um, find a supplier, yeah. That's right, but... So while it does change the power differential and, and you might say, well, does it doesn't really matter how cross-cultural you are? I think, um, you know, I think some of some, I've gone to some cross-cultural training, for example, and they say really unhelpful things like you shouldn't touch people's heads. Well, I managed to go through life many, many days in meetings without touching people's heads. I mean, it's unlikely you're going to touch, you know, but they're not very helpful. But I what? think... What? <laughs> You know, it's a faux pas. Well, of course it is. Um, But you say that, but then people give gifts of football beanies and start putting them on people's heads. At least that's in context, though. That's in context as opposed to just going and touch someone on the head. But I think, 
when if you're a buyer, it's actually more important because I mean, I spoke to one customer, one member who was getting couches made, for example. They were thinking, oh, should we for us or our low-end stock get it made in China? So they sent off the plans to China and it came back and it was kind of rubbish. It was just sort of eyeball. So their their feedback to the company in China was it just doesn't feel heavy enough because, you know, a good couch, you know, feels mm-hmm. heavy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so then the next um, sample came across and it certainly felt heavier and they ripped off the back and they realised that there were sort of 20 bricks strapped. (laughs) 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 But this is the thing, like communication isn't so much getting the words out but getting the meaning across. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, getting things right when you're the buyer is just as important. Well, well, part of it is that power differentiation and and I was telling people that I was in Morocco recently and I caught a taxi and the taxi driver took me on a detour because we were chatting and he said, well, let's go down here. <clears throat> and everyone I spoke to was horrified and said, oh, how could you do that in the middle of the night, go on a detour? And I said, well, mainly because I'm a middle-aged white male and the world's designed around me. <laughs> I don't have a problem traveling. Everyone else has got issues to worry with. Um, the, so the, regardless of what the what situation you're in, there is a power differentiation need to be aware of. And it's more so in cross-cultural, I, I would think. I think so. Um, you know, I was quite, I've you know, been in situations where very senior people when I'm quite young, as a young woman, in a, in a culture where, you know, it's a very patriarchal society, you know, Japan and the like. Um, but I, I mean, I always deflect with humour. I was fine. But though... As, as at the start of this podcast, we talked about sometimes humour doesn't work. I remember many years ago, but opening that, that, that trade show in Japan and they put a big bow on my lapel, which, and then I, they said, oh, this means you're VIP. Oh. And I said, oh, I thought this meant I'd have to serve the drinks. And they were so <laughs> horrified. Oh, no. <laughs> and they, they wanted to, because they were so conscious of the, the ill placement of me in, in sort of the hierarchy. They were so, you know, desperate to to reassure me that no, I was not <laughs> serving drinks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's easy to just get that wrong, and uh, and that leads us to another part of, of cross cultural communication, which is called um, social norms. And there's many things that we do. Everyone does stuff they know that's unspoken, and mm. uh, a, a nice way of trying to explain a social norm is. Um, if I said to someone, oh, we're, we're getting together on, on Friday, bring beer, um, we're getting together on Friday, and they, they said to someone, well, what do you do in Australia if there's a get-together? They'd say, oh, bring beer. But what about if we're getting together at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, someone would turn up with beer, and we'd go, Ooh. and we'd kind of try and we'd look to frown on them. And uh, there's a whole bunch of different stories about how close you stand to each other, how yeah. loud you talk, uh, how mm. quietly you talk, how formal you talk. There are the social norms. Um, it's hard to understand social norms in another in other culture, though, isn't it? And you can you can do a social faux pas like the like the bow. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's easy to just be observant. I think that's the key. It's being, yeah. I mean, it, mm. as it is in any. I mean, even with if you go to visit someone's home when you're a kid, you know, some families leave shoes outside. Some wear them inside. You know, you just yeah, pay attention. Yeah, you just yeah. notice what people are doing. Um, keep your hands to yourself is just a good rule, I think. 
in any culture. Well, you know, they're wrong with that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always, like, I just find sometimes in terms of getting cross-cultural communication right, it's just time. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first started going to Japan, very formal, but then somehow after year four, I was greeted with a hug. Oh, okay. You know, broke my own social norms. But anyway, uh, <laughs> because it was if, oh, now now you're in the club. Yeah, you know yeah. You now. Yeah, sure, sure. And and you're allowed to make mistakes when you're first developing. Uh, if you don't, unless you do it really badly, you can, mm. you can make those sort of sort of uh, crazy mistakes. And most, most people I find recognise that there's been mistakes on, on both sides when it comes to that kind of cultural misunderstanding. You haven't just sort of well, like I think the thing is, though, um, when you're working international trade, chances are most of the people you interact with are also in international trade. So oh, you're not true. dealing with the stereotypical, you know, sort of monk in the monastery sort of thing. You know, these are people who are exposed to the world and well, have probably stereotypical- studied... American tourists being way too loud. Well, that's boring. right. Except for the Americans, but but particularly in Asia, you you're generally dealing with people who have perhaps studied overseas um, yeah, yeah. for whatever time period. You know, mm-hmm. have got, got a bit more experience and a bit more um, sort of awareness. I think for me though, but, but what I are they stop- when you're doing those trade doors? I mean, that that must be business to business. A lot of those businesses wouldn't have been to Australia or been overseas. They would just be running their own local. Businesses. No, but what I find. If they're, if they're big multinationals, then they probably do, and that that's, sure, there's sure. a whole other power differential, you know, when people work for those big, especially big American companies. Well, that's a different culture altogether, <laughs> by the way. It's, I feel like we're bashing on Americans too much. Anyway. It's a, it's, it's a different culture, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not just... <laughs> that. That's right. So that overlays whatever yeah, yeah. country culture. But, um, like, I'd never forget going to see GM in Thailand, worst meeting I've ever been in my Entire life where they oh, basically this good. said, "Normal gossip, let's go." <laughs> That's right. He's all good. You, you, you Australians will never sell to us. We'll never be cheap enough. You know why you're wasting our time? You're dreadful. It was awful, awful meeting. Um, but what I, what was I, where was I going off? Yeah. So I think the the those business to business, if they're family owned companies, you get the head of the families talking together, then business gets done, and they get and, it, and yeah. they meet each they other because it. there's yeah. it's. Shared values, mm, mm. Um, shared power. You know, they control the decision. They're the ones. You know, handshake is enough. Yeah. So over the years, those sorts of companies I've always enjoyed taking because they they send the person who can sign the check, and they do a lot of work. I think there's a really good insight because it contrasts with that. The, I don't know if you know. Have you come across the Barbie? Um, <laughs> I haven't mentioned Barbie on the podcast before. We come across the Barbie movie controversy. Vietnam has banned the the highly, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the Barbie. Yeah, because the, the nine dash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a nine dash. There's a map behind, I guess, Barbie at some stage. Yeah. There's some sort of scene where there's a map of Vietnam, and it looks like. Well, it's sort of not really. It's just over Asia, but anyway, yeah. When I when I watched the movie, because I knew the controversy. Funny. Oh, you've seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, I knew the controversy and then, you know, went to see the movie and it was just, well, it's people looking for trouble. So just, just to find it, so there's a map somewhere on a wall that's got Vietnam on it. They said, well, no, they, they said this is the world. Oh, right. And because and of Asia Pacific is quite big, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a children's cartoon map. And Vietnam <laughs> has said, no, you make us look like we're part of China. Is that, the, is yeah, that basically the... I think so. Yeah, yeah. So the people that made the Barbie movies didn't mean that, didn't intend it, and 
probably no, pretty surprised. No, you really had to look hard. Like anyway, but it just shows these things mm. happen, and you don't realise unintended yeah. consequences. Yeah, yeah, and and people are touchy about all sorts of things. You know, they get they get touchy. Man. Crazy. Yeah, South China Sea is pretty yeah, touchy. Yeah. Mm. Have you you just mentioned America before? Do, do you find uh, American and Australian cultures are closely aligned? I think. Um, I, I mean, is it easy to do business with America? I must find it, it is reasonably easy, but they tend to be a little bit more aggressive in their approach to business. You know, they, they go after business harder. I think we see the Americans as more ruthless and they think, what are you talking about? I'm just doing business. Like they, they yeah. will, if you leave a door open, they'll go through it. Like they're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not personal. Um, I, I think in I think Australia relationships probably, like probably more close, Asian than we like to think. Relationships probably mean a bit more. Um, but I'm always hesitant to say, you know, relationships, you know, you can't go to this market unless you have quality product and, you know, you invest in the relationships. Because, frankly, I'm yet to find a market that will take dodgy products off strangers. Um, we should wrap up. This has been a great conversation. Uh, going back to uh, sort of a worldview, we've, we've seen that some some problems around the world and we've seen trade go up and down and we've seen um you know blockages put in place what do you think is going to happen over the next few years are we going to come together as one one great big melting pot and be all friends again or are we going to become more insular how's it going to happen well i think um i think trade trade will always be there people keep Hmm. talking about the end of globalization i think that will ever happen when the productivity commission who is you know hard taskmasters they did a review of China's sanctions on Australian products, made no economic difference. I mean, there was that, that golden mm-hmm. moment, mm-hmm. you know, particularly for those of us in Victoria who had cheap lobsters one Christmas. Um, but for everything else, I mean, other than for the individual, mm-hmm. you know, individual companies would have suffered in all sorts of different ways, particularly wine growers or wine sellers. Um, but if we think of barley, for example, that the sanctions put on well, the, the economic limits put on barley from Australia to China, there's only so much barley in the world and there is a global market for barley, so it just shifted. Um, I think, you know, I think when, when people, when, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, people were shocked. At, you know, if you'd asked anyone, oh, do we trade with Ukraine, people would say, well, no, surely we don't do anything. But, you know, when it hit, suddenly we discovered, oh, no, so much sunflower oil and sunflower seeds come from Ukraine and we use it in pet food and all sorts well, of things. Well, I was shocked. I mean, I, when they when I started looking at Ukraine and, and what they exported, get out of here. What? Mm. Are you serious? That's a huge, yeah. it's a huge country, like yeah. massive exporter. So, I mean, it's yeah. noticeable when one country comes off the line like that. But, you know, I think we all shift. I do think, though, I alluded to it earlier under the IRA, I think critical minerals, semiconductors, that there is going to be not a Cold War, so to speak, but there will be a line through the world oh, okay. um, for this mm-hmm. market. Japan's already talking about restricting exports of the machines that make the high-end semiconductors mm-hmm. to, to certain countries. Um, you know, I think... I think there will be changes. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest concern. That there's going to be sort of back to the east and west again. It's not necessarily mm. it's going to be that that it's going to be a different line, but there's going to be a line between us and them, which is not good for a globe. 
No, and I think for supply chain managers, the um, you know we talked about IRA and how that will drive you know more traceability on mm. supply chains. Mm. The other legislation that went through the US at the, around the same time that doesn't get as much um, attention is the Uyghur Bill, which means that if you've got product coming from China with you almost have to prove that you've not used slave labour from Uyghur minorities. Mm, which is um, not exactly easy. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's rare that you're guilty before then you have to prove yourself innocent. I think that is likely to expand perhaps. Mm, I mean, if you mm. think about, you know, photovoltaics and, and all sorts of things, fabrics, you know, it's, China's done well to make sure that region of China is integrated in quite a lot of supply chains. So I and think it's becoming a bigger would... issue in um, uh, ESG because yeah. it's, it's a social part. You know, you've got to make sure you don't buy stuff from that region because they're not going to match the social compliance. But it's where the, a lot of things come from. It's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. Well, and how will you search for it? I mean, critical minerals, perhaps fabric, you can look at the DNA yeah, fabric, if you really want possible. to. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, some of these things, it's going to be tough. And they hide it, you know, it's deliberately yeah, hidden. That's right. If you really want to hide it, you can. Well, I'll talk about that on another day because that's a whole whole section of itself. <laughs> We've had a good chat. I really enjoyed talking about, you know, social norms and, and, and power differentials and whatever. But what I got out of the whole thing and, and with the digitalization and digital trade, but what I got out of the whole thing is this overriding message from you from those decades of experience is just keep being positive. You know, going to those conversations with a positive approach and, and, and then people will treat you the same way. Is that a, a summary of your worldview? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's easy to spot differences amongst people. But one thing, I think what's kept me in international trade for so many years is that generally everyone involved is optimistic. You, you believe in the art of the possible and that's why you're so, you know, that's why we're so committed to trade. And if all else, all else fails, just go and drink beer. That's my view. <laughs> or gin. If or gin. Well, gin's a gin. What's next for you? Are you travelling overseas in the in the next few months? So I'm heading off to um, oh, India the, with Innes for the, the G20 20, for yeah. the B20 meetings. Mm. Um, I'm on, and then in October I'm to back to Indonesia, Yogi Kata. I'm on the board of this great little unit called Achesis, which mm. is on the advisory board, which is a joint venture between universities, and it sends Australian students to Indonesia under the new Colombo plan. Oh, so wow. I think we, we send, oh, I, you I don't want to say student? the numbers because I'll get into trouble, but hundreds of Australian students for sort of six weeks to a semester to a year to Indonesia and you know as you probably got a hint of me studying overseas was such a formative experience I'm really excited that I get to get Australians uh, yeah into and, that as and well. Indonesia apart from the big cities Indonesia is just a I love Yogyakarta. We went there in January right. um, for a holiday and um, after West Papua and you know there's 40 universities it's a university town yeah yeah you got to yeah. sit there and have your coffee with the with the hot cold so it doesn't go cold uh, and uh, for the people listening, uh, I said uh, Louise was an internationalist in the multicultural. She spent her holidays uh, canoeing around West uh, West Timor, West uh, West Papua, West Papua. Yeah, as you do, I guess. Yeah, it's been lovely having you on the <laughs> on the on the program. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks. It's good to see you behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it all works properly. So that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thanks for your feedback. If you have any feedback on today's 
uh, interview with lawyers uh, or ideas to show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at uh, james.scotland. You know, that's just with one T, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now. Thank you.